Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 40. Uh, wonderful guest lined up this week. I'm so excited to have him on the program. Going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm sure it will be enlightening, edifying, and all sorts of other exciting adjectives that I could describe to you. Um, but before we get into that, I do want to do my usual pitch for Counterpunch. Again, I know it's almost like I'm proselytizing here, but the importance of alternative media, it really can't be understated for those of us on the left. You know, we have so few spaces, either online and especially in print, where we can honestly uh, have a dialogue and a debate about the major issues, the burning issues of the day. We have so many of them, even divisive issues on the left, be they uh, around the world in terms of foreign affairs, be they Bernie Sanders or what have you, so many issues that we need to really have a, a discussion about on the left, and increasingly that space is shrinking. Luckily, we have Counterpunch. Counterpunch still does a print magazine, unlike almost any other outlet out there. The importance of print, I also can't understate, um, or overstate rather, and um, get a subscription to the magazine. If you like Counterpunch, if you want to support this project, it's a great way to do that and to get something back. And it's something great with the artwork, with the columns, with all of that. You know, it's something that I really enjoy getting in my mailbox and taking my time uh, reading through it over the course of a month. So uh, do consider that. Also, if you'd like to give a donation, you can do that via the website, PayPal, and all the usual features. Of course, Counterpunch Radio, we're trying to build, we're trying to bring to more listeners. If you want to give us a positive review on iTunes. That's very, very helpful. Even just embedding the links to the podcast weekly and sending it out to your friends, your family via email, posting it on Facebook or, you know, various other social media. All of that is really appreciated and really productive. So I thank those of you who have already done that and who are planning on doing that. Um, so all of that out of the way, I do want to turn to my guest this week. Um, it's been a while since I spoke with him and it's always such a great pleasure. Uh, to speak with Richard Wolf. Uh, many of you probably know him, but in case you don't, uh, Professor Wolf is the Professor Emeritus uh, of Economics at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He is currently the professor at the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School. Now, what you really want to know is where you can find his work. His website, rdwolf with two Fs, dot com. That's rdwolf.com. Also, very important resource, democracyatwork.info, which we'll be talking about in this conversation. Also, his very important uh, radio show, Economic Update, here in New York on WBAI, now all over the country. You can get the podcast as well. And finally, also his book, Very Important, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. So with that out of the way, Richard Wolf, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. My pleasure, Eric. Glad to be here. So um, we have so much to discuss, but I want to begin with something actually quite general, um, and, and that's really about capitalism in a broad sense. One of the things that, for people who aren't familiar with your work, one of the things you really focus on, in my view, is talking about specific issues, whatever they may be, coming up in the news, but within the context of this broader question about capitalism as a system, looking at these systemic questions rather than 
than the individual. So whether it's the Panama Papers what are, or, you know, WikiLeaks or whatever it may be, we have these questions about capitalism. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why do you focus on the systemic questions of capitalism rather than exposing the individual uh, nefarious deeds? Well, for me, there are basically two reasons uh, why I do that. Uh, the first one, and maybe the easiest one to summarize, is that I focus on the systemic because it has been taboo in the United States for 50 years uh, to do that, uh, except for a few of us uh, on the left. It has been thought somehow that to question capitalism was either to show some sort of ignorance, some sort of lack of education, or more darkly, some sort of disloyalty, etc., etc. And even people who knew that this was propaganda, we were nonetheless, and I put myself in that group too, very deeply affected by the general notion, uh, very strong in academia, where I've spent my life, that pursuing a systemic critique of capitalism would be not good for your uh, job, not good for your career, not good for your future, and maybe just not good for anything having to do with the important parts of your life. And therefore, why don't you go someplace else with your interests and, and so forth? And it meant, for example, that if you were a social critic of one kind or another, you were precisely well advised, if you were looking out for yourself, to focus only on the specifics, on the concrete, on the event, on the latest outrage, rather than to show its links to the larger system of which it was a part, of which it was a manifestation. And so even critics ended up shying away from the systemic. So one major reason I do it is to to take advantage of the new interest and the new openness in the United States to look precisely at that dimension, the systemic, that was so taboo and scary for people for so long. The other one is, and I'll be a little bit grandiose here and do a little economic history with you, I really think, and I am not prone to this way of thinking, and I am not an alarmist or anything like that, never have been, but I really believe that having studied capitalism as an economist, a professional economist all my life, having seen it grow from its origins in the 18th century in England to become the prevailing global system now, that we are seeing an old, before its time, economic system that is in such deep difficulty with such a network of problems and crises one overtaking the other, that it is now more necessary than ever to ask and answer the question, have we come to a point where this is a system that can no longer manage, cope with, absorb, or tolerate its own internal contradictions, its own difficulties? And for me, at least provisionally, the answer is, Quite likely that is the case, or at least it's possible, and that therefore we need to ask and answer questions about the system as a whole. It is simply too dangerous and self-destructive not to explore that dimension, so I focus on it. 
Yeah, I think that that's I think that's a great way of putting it. And just to, just to kind of hit on one particular example, just in the news recently, this question of the Panama Papers, and you know there was a lot of discussion about that. Um, you know, I I talked about it. Many many others had from varying perspectives. But one of the things that I find particularly interesting, and I know that this is kind of the direction that you took with it to to some degree, is not so much the malfeasance and the criminality of all this, because in fact a lot of it is legal, but rather what the Panama Papers and the the system by which the billionaires, the the capitalists, by which they not only extract their wealth from the economies, but hide their wealth and use it, and the the sort of shadow systems into which it disappears, that to me is not simply criminal, that to me is an indication of one of the fundamental mechanisms of how modern capitalism works, and that is an example of where this system systemic analysis really comes in handy. Yeah, I think so. I would come at it a slightly different way. Uh, Much was made last year by this remarkable book by a French economist, uh, Thomas Piketty, who works with an American, uh, Emmanuel Saez, who's an economics professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, They're famous around the world for being really the go-to researchers on income and wealth. And Mr. Piketty's uh, uh, famous book uh, of, the, of the analysis of what's going on now makes this basic point that capitalism has always tended to produce extreme inequality of wealth. True, periodically, people's anger and resentment about it have exploded, and for a period of time, never very long, the inequality is reversed for a while, sort of what happened in the New Deal, say, in the United States. But then within a few years, um, this temporary movement towards equality is undone, and the inequality drive of the system keeps moving forward. I was literally blown away in February of this year, 2016, when the most famous charity in the world that studies this stuff, Oxfam in England, released that stunning statistic that the 62 richest people in the world, most of whom are Americans, together own more wealth than the bottom half of the population of this planet, three and a half billion people. Well, this is not about this or that capitalist doing this or that good thing or bad thing or even hiding their wealth. This is a system whose achievement in the 21st century is to give us a level of inequality, the parallel for which we'd have to go back to ancient Egypt and the pharaohs uh, to find anything like this. It's such a statement that you have a system whose outcomes, with all the shenanigans, hiding your wealth, evading taxes, um, exploiting your workers, and all the rest of it, the bottom line is this is a system that either isn't working, as when it crashes in 2008, uh, with all the disasters since then, or is a system that produces a level of economic inequality that I don't think is acceptable and sustainable in the modern world, which is why I think the system is what has to be called into question, uh, rather than the particularities, uh, even when they're glaringly exposed as the 
Panama Papers did. Yeah, that's right. And one of the other things that um, I know you point out quite often, and, and I, of course, 100% agree, is the fallacy that really the mythology about capitalism, that it is a, you know, that it is a stable system, one that is efficient, one that works well, you know, as or better than any other system ever could. And of course, if you actually look at even just the, the relatively modern history of capitalism, you see uh, depression after depression, collapse after collapse, crisis after crisis, you know, I mean, 1873, 1891, 19, you know what I mean? You could, you could look at it and it's so... It's such a regular occurrence that, if anything, capitalism by its very nature is unstable, by its very nature un, uh, unequal and inequitable. So I think that the systemic analysis also gets to the very nature of how capitalism works and what it is. Yeah, take a look. I mean, I just do a little economic history often with people when I give talks around the country. The crash in 2008 is the second, everybody agrees, is the second worst collapse of capitalism in 75 years. The first one, uh, the worst one, being the one of 1929 to 1941. Okay, that's already a prima facie case that you ought to ask systemic questions. Yes. An economic system that crashes on a global scale twice in 75 years is a system you want to ask some questions about. But then you can take it the next step. Look, the, look it up. Uh, an entity called the National Bureau of Economic Research is the official agency in this country that tells you when a recession happens and when a downturn occurs. And they measured how many of those occurred between the end of the Great, Depre uh, Great Depression, namely 1941, and the uh, onslaught of the current one in 2008. And the number of economic downturns, according to the NBER, is 11. Okay, so you have two major crashes in 75 years, and between them, 11 economic downturns. In each of those, millions of people lost their job for periods sometimes as short as a few months, sometimes as long as years. You had together in this economy here in the United States, uh, millions of people out of work looking for a job, a huge proportion of the tools, equipment, factory and office space sitting idle, gathering rust and dust, and thereby depriving this country uh, of trillions, with a T, trillions of dollars of output, even though we were capable of producing more, even though we were capable of solving the many social problems we have with the outputs that these people with, who are unemployed could have produced, this instability of our economy is at the same time, and I want to pick that up because you, you mentioned it, it's a stunning, screaming statement about the inefficiency of capitalism as a system. Yep. What good is it? What good is it to be terribly efficient at producing, you know, 8 billion toothbrushes with the minimum of labor and proudly showing off your efficiency, if at the same time that you talk about it, there are millions of people sitting in the streets, in their homes, without work, without income, while the tools, equipment, and raw materials they need are sitting idle, deteriorating. 
the inequality and the inefficiency of this system should have been long ago more than enough to support and indeed to make urgent the question of the system that works this way. Yeah, and just as another example taken outside of the uh, context of economic production, you know, just something that came across my came across my uh, my computer screen just the other day. I think it was five million five million homeless people, fifteen million unoccupied homes. I, I mean, that alone is a perfect illustration of what we mean when we talk about inefficiency. Forget the people on Wall Street who are, you know, orchestrating this or that. Just the very nature of the distribution is, st- I mean, it's just shockingly inefficient and I would say immoral and barbaric. Yeah, you have a system that says you build an apartment or you build a house if and when it's profitable. And if it isn't profitable, no one's going to build it. I mean, that's the way capitalism works. The fact that there are millions of people who need housing is, in a system like this, basically irrelevant. The only question is, do they have the money, which we know they don't, uh, to pay for it and to pay a price <coughs> that will generate a profit for a capitalist? If that isn't the case, and no one cares what the reason is, if that isn't the case... The house isn't built. The jobs building the house go begging. The person doesn't have the house who's homeless. And we have the colossal waste of resources of unemployed people, unused equipment and inputs, and unmet social needs such as housing. This system reproduces that absurd juxtaposition. Unmet needs, unemployed people, unused means of production, on a regular basis, and we we don't ask questions about a system that works this way. And that's when it's functioning well. Yes. <laughs> and the irony is, when people say to me, well, why are you a critic of capitalism? For me, the truth is, what I want to do is scream back at them, why aren't you? Why aren't you a critic of a system that works this way? That's, for me, the the $64 million question. It is a system that is unstable, that is unequal. The injustice of both of those is palpable all around us. We really do know it makes me kind of, takes my breath away at the power of the ideology in our society that makes these relatively overwhelming, obvious realities not produce in the public the criticism of the system that seems to me uh, a necessary inference from from what I've just described. Yeah, absolutely right. And so I want to shift a little bit and and talk about something a bit more specific because I think it relates to just what we're talking about and what you were um, what what you were outlining at the beginning of our conversation, and that has to do with what we should be expecting because there are a lot of people. Uh, economists, eminent economists, including uh, Michael Hudson, who I had on this program a few months ago, talking about 
what kind of an economic crisis we are facing. We are staring dead on into a potentially uh, large-scale collapse. Okay, now, first, I want to just get your take on that. And secondarily, what has driven us to this point? Is it the reinflation of the bubble economy, the quantitative easing, all of these neoliberal policies that have been implemented since 2008, and actually for decades before, but especially since 2008 to prop up this system, or is it something even deeper than that? Well, I think the first level of answer I would give is that I don't believe personally in prediction. I don't think anybody, myself included, uh, can tell you with any certainty what the future holds. You may go to an amusement park and pay somebody to tell you your future, but you, you should remember always that it's an amusement and it's not really to be taken seriously. I don't know, and I don't think anyone else does, whether we're going to have a crash, whether we're going to have another downturn. If you were to change the question slightly and to say to me, are the conditions in place that make it extremely likely that such a thing could happen, I wouldn't hesitate one second to tell you yes. That's a better I, way of phrasing that question. Yeah, thank, I think... Thank you. I think, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it, it's just... It's just a careful not to get, you know, ahead of yourself in yes. terms of, of what it is uh, you, you really have the basis to speak about. And I can be very concrete with it. We have uh, a global crisis since 2008. The reason that crisis happened, I mean, there are many, but one big one was that the world changed in the 1970s and 80s in a fundamental way that, frankly, I don't believe the American people have still uh, had a public discussion of in the way that is necessary. 150 years of American economic success and growth, our capitalist system, was able not only to generate spectacular profits, but also to raise the real wages, the, the actual standard of living of the American working class. In the 1970s, for a whole host of reasons, that process stopped. Real wages stopped rising in the United States for a population that had thought that somehow that was built into being an American, that the American dream of a rising standard of living was somehow the special exceptionalism of this society. So it was traumatic when that stopped. But it was doubly traumatic because when it stopped, nobody pointed it out. No leader, no political leadership, nobody. And so the American people had no way of grasping the social change that was about to overwhelm them. And as it did, they took individual steps to try to cope. Now, individual steps never work if you have a social problem. The way you solve a social problem is with a social movement. But if you don't have one, then you try as an individual. And Americans did basically two things. They worked more hours. That's the way to offset the fact that your wages weren't going up. And they sent more people in the family out to work, women particularly. And when even that wasn't enough, they started borrowing money like no one had ever seen. Well, if for 40 years, roughly the 1970s to the present, 2008 anyway, if you keep borrowing money and your wages with which you pay all that back don't go up, it's only a matter of time before you hit a stone wall when you have borrowed more money than you can afford uh, to pay back. That's what 2008 was. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Because absolutely nothing 
in that story I've just told you has been changed. Nothing has been solved. No fundamental shifts have happened so that there's no other logic one can have but to say, look, another crisis is coming because we really haven't learned from the crisis we just went through how to understand the whole half century behind us that has led us up to this dilemma. And so we are marching down the same road, and it'll have the same tragic ending. And I see all that unfolding, and whether you point to the specifics that Chinese economic growth is slowing, which of course it is, but the explanation for that comes back to the basic story. Americans can't buy. Europeans can't buy. And the Chinese are an economy focused on exporting what they produce to all of us. If we can't buy because our economy is in the doldrums, then of course the Chinese will slow down. And when they slow down, that spreads to everywhere else. That's what we have, a global system in which the leading players, Europe and the United States, and I could add Japan, are in such difficulty because of how they've evolved and how they've tried to solve their problems, particularly with an absurd reliance on debt, you've exhausted all of the escape hatches for a capitalism that isn't working real well. And so the prognosis is, to be honest with you, frightening. I can't tell you when or how or exactly where the breaks will come, but that we're in a deep problem. Well, let me illustrate it in this way. I uh, went to all the fancy schools in the United States to get my Ph.D. and all of that, and so I have friends who are in fancy places. I got my Ph.D. at Yale, and my classmate, for example, was Janet Yellen, so, you know, you, I know the right people, and I have lunch from time to time with people who are left-wing economists, right-wing economists, and economists in the middle. And we don't agree on how we got into this mess, and we don't agree on how to get out of it. But what is really amazing to me and to them is that we do agree on the following sentence. This is the worst condition of the American economy that any of us has ever seen in our lifetimes. Yeah, I, I don't think that there's really any way to argue against that. And one of the other points I want to make before we go to break and it, it, kind of touching on a, on a term that you use that I think is really significant. You talked about the evolution of this economy and how it has evolved. And one of the things that I think has to be said about how this economy has evolved is what I guess we might call the financialization of the economy, whether talking about these uh, exotic instruments, derivatives, you know, uh, mortgage-backed securities and the collateralized debt obligations and the credit default swaps and all of this stuff, all the chicanery going on on Wall Street. Um, I think the ascendance of finance capital and the financialization of everything, including commodities themselves, I think that is one of the fundamental, uh, maybe we could say, uh, developments of this economy uh, in the last 50 years that has probably driven us to some degree to this point. Absolutely. That's why I stressed 
the end of rising wages in the, in the United States and the trauma that led the American working class to become a pioneer after the 1970s, only this time not in covered wagons going across the prairie, but instead in borrowing more money than any working class in the world had ever borrowed before. Borrowing for your home with a mortgage, borrowing to buy your car, borrowing with a credit card that only becomes a mass uh, phenomena in the 1970s, and now in the most shameful final step of it, making it impossible to get uh, a college degree for most people without more debt. This creation of debt was the key factor in what we call financialization. It meant, as everybody listening to this program knows, that for many people, going to the corner store to get a bottle of water is now an occasion to use your credit card, and that's a form of borrowing. So you create this vast paper blizzard of debts. Then the, the banks and the other rich people speculate in those debts to produce all those funny instruments you listed. And on top of an economy that isn't working very well, you now have an even shakier construction of debts and speculations and paper that, that kind of plays with this debt in the hopes of making a quick killing, you really have all the ingredients for a level of instability that is as scary as what we see around us. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's let's take a break very quickly. And on the other side of the break, I want to pick up on this uh, financialization question, another angle on that. And then I want to start talking about some solutions, because I think that that is really critical. We don't want to just give uh, analysis. We also want to talk about how we might begin to envision getting out of this. So uh, we'll pick it up there on the other side of the break in my conversation here with Richard Wolf. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Richard Wolf again. You got to follow his work. And even if you do, you know, hear him on the radio, I would urge people to go to his website so you can get all of the materials, rdwolf with two Fs dot com and also democracyatwork.info. Um, so... I want to I want to pick up on this question of financialization, but from a slightly different perspective. Um, I recently was writing a piece uh, about um, the oil prices and the political ramifications of the collapse of oil for oil exporting countries. And one of the things that really is startling, even for me, even though I kind of knew it, was the extent to which the big banks, the major Wall Street and City of London banks, have gotten into commodities and not just commodities in terms of futures and speculation. But actually, the physical holding of commodities, one of the things that came out of an investigation in Congress was Morgan Stanley holding something like 50 billion barrels of oil in 2011 in these various holding facilities all over the world. And this issue about the banks and the banks getting into things beyond just banking, um, I think, is also an example of how the economy has been financialized and then secondarily, how these things can be used as political weapons. So um, give me your take on that question and obviously the political angle, if, you, if you'd like to discuss that. Sure. Well, first, let's deal with the, the financialization and the banks. If you make almost every transaction, whether it is by a consumer worker on the one hand or by an employer or by the government, riddled with debt and credit, which is what we've done over the last 40 years. Every government is deeply in debt, issuing more debt literally as we speak. Every corporation is busy in dipping into the credit markets. And the really new thing, because those are old, is the consumer as becoming a massive uh, indebted uh, part of our economy. Well, if you do that, you're making credit a lifeline in this economy in a way it never was before. Everything depends on credit. The ability of milk to come to the store where you buy it is based on credit. The uh, going to school, get an education is based on credit. Literally, everything is based on credit. Well, credit is handled overwhelmingly by the banks. So if you expand the role of credit in your economy, you are creating or expanding the space for banks to do what they do in that credit situation. And that is collect everybody's money and lend it out in every conceivable way that they can. And this is fundamentally irrational. Why? Because the bank is not driven by helping the economy work well. The bank is not driven by having policies that are conducive to the adjustments a society has to make when debt becomes so important. Banks are profit-driven enterprises in a capitalist system. And so what they do is look for every opportunity to make money with other people's money. That's what they do, and they will find new gimmicks, new mechanisms, new instruments, uh, they will go into holding oil in, in barrels around the world. They will go into every kind of financial uh, dealing that they think will make them money. If those deals that they make destabilize the economy, their answer is, that's not our concern. 
<clears throat> and given the way capitalism works, this is quite right. No banker at the head of Wells Fargo or Citibank or Chase or any of the others is there because he or she has good ideas about helping an economy work. They're there to make profits for the bank. Why a reasonable society would arrange its affairs so that something as fundamental as credit that is necessary for every actor in the economy to deal with should be handled by a small number of monster banks driven not by the social welfare of what they do, but simply by private profit for themselves, that is itself such a systemically absurd way of doing it that for me the only question is what kind of a crazy society would arrange that? We don't, for example, in this country allow anybody and everybody to be the police or to have the police or to have an army. And we say that's because this is too important, too potentially dangerous an institution to allow just anybody, especially someone in the business of private profit, uh, to run something we need so urgently to be there for all of us. Well, money is the same thing. Why in the world are we allowing private enterprises? It would be as if we had private companies <clears throat> running around playing the role of police or army or fire department or anything else. That's irrational. We don't do that. And the real question for me is that we have allowed an economy to become dependent on finance and credit while allowing the same old institutions that existed before our economy was discredit dependent to continue to play the role of coordinator of the credit, even though their objective is private profit. I think therein lies one of the deepest critiques of how capitalism works. Absolutely. And just to kind of piggyback on that last point you were making, we also have seen increasingly over the last couple of decades, and especially since 2008, this uh, this drive uh, by finance capital to essentially, I guess we could say, capitalize a lot of these sectors of the economy, which are traditionally outside of the sphere of, uh, of, of banks and of finance capital. Just as one example, the privatization of our public schools. You have major corporations worth billions and billions of dollars, Pearson and Scholastic and all of the rest of them, who get these contracts to create all of the materials and all of the rest of that. And simultaneously, you have a movement that is bankrolled by hedge funds on Wall Street, by the big banks and the various foundations to try to create what I would consider to be essentially a market for profit out of what had traditionally been the public sphere public education. And we see that in a number of aspects of the economy. And I would say that is also part of what I guess we could call this financialization process. Absolutely. And you, what you see is that literally, and I've been at meetings where I sat there watching this process in which bank officials or bank officials together with non-financial corporate officials saying to themselves, the government is here doing something in and for and by the public, and thereby, and this is their language, depriving us of a private profit opportunity. Yep. And then telling each other, 
until I make fun of them, uh, telling each <laughs> other that capitalism is about the government supporting private profit enterprise, not replacing it or substituting itself for it. And so, yes, they want to, for example, take over the education system. Private schools can make profits for people who invest in them. They don't want public schools. Another example, which is still on the burner here, is to privatize the entire social security system, yes. to stop having the government play the role of providing all of us with a modest, and I underscore the word modest, a modest pension when we're over 65 or 6, um, and they want to get in on that. They want to have a profit-making enterprise where we all pay some uh, stock hustler to invest the money we set aside for our futures, paying him or her uh, a fat fee, a profitable return to the company that sets up the advisors we're all going to have to use because the government is no longer in there. Uh, you can see it also in the attempt, particularly in other countries, but here in this country too, to take away the parkland. I mean, in, the, in our central cities, mm -hmm. the park is looked at by economic developers and so on as a chance to build another expensive uh, condo and make a lot of money uh, instead of having it sit there uh, for people to have picnics on. We live in a capitalism that is forever set up to look for private profit opportunities and to work very hard to sacrifice, to get rid of publicly shared assets in a community, because for them, these are just so many zones from which they have been excluded and into which they want to insert the profit motive that is the engine of capitalism uh, wherever it has existed. That's absolutely right, and we could we could go for hours just on that subject alone because there's a lot to say about that. But I do want to shift in the in the final portion of our conversation to some of the uh, more solutions oriented issues here. And before we get into your really great initiative and 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 the conversation about that, I want to touch on one movement that we see that I think is actually. Uh, relevant to so a few of the different points you have made here uh, today, Richard. So first, this question, th this movement, Fight for 15. Okay, it's it's been kind of a centerpiece of some of the debates in the Democratic Party because of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Uh, it certainly has had traction with organized labor, but this really relates to what you were talking about in the beginning of the conversation, this issue of wages and the importance of focusing on wages, particularly for the most vulnerable in our society. So I want to just get your take on the fight for 15 and its importance uh, really as an issue in and of itself purely in the economic realm, but then secondarily as an issue that I, that I call, I would say, is kind of at the intersection between the economy and our solutions, institutions for solutions such as labor unions and so forth. So what do you make of this movement and is this one of the ways that we can move forward? Uh, I absolutely think it's a way to move forward. I, I support it, of course, as all of us, I think, uh, do. I would say that I do that less as an economist. I'll get to that in a minute. And more just as a, as a citizen of the United States with a fairly strong moral uh, dimension to the way I think about things. I don't believe a society holds together 
if there are some people who have billions and other people who get nine or ten dollars an hour for their labor uh, the gap between them, the inequality, the resentment, the anger, the unfairness of it are literally social uh, explosions, and they don't belong in a decent society, and we oughtn't to tolerate them for one minute. Having said that, let's look at the economics. If you raise the wages of workers, you basically confront employers with the risk of a loss. That has to be faced. Uh, employers don't want to pay those higher wages, and employers have always fought against having to pay uh, higher wages, whether it's a higher wage, higher than an old minimum, if you raise the minimum wage, or a higher wage for the reason that a union has gotten together and, and given the workers the strength to bargain collectively for it, etc. Whatever the reason, employers don't want to pay. And one of the ways they always react is by threatening the workers and their supporters. And here's the way they threaten. Number one, if you succeed in raising the wages, we will fire a large number of you. Why? Because we don't get enough profit from, from your labor if we have to pay you, for, the, for example, now $15 an hour instead of whatever the lower uh, wage was that we used to pay you. Number one. Number two, a second kind of threat. If you force us to pay you more money, we are going to take it out on the general public by jacking up the price. Well, besides the economics of all of this, I think the working class has to understand that that's what they're in. They're in a fight with the employer who is threatening them with retaliation if they push for what they want and what, of course, they deserve, in this case, $15 an hour, since that isn't even enough to have a, a decent life in our country as it is. And, that, and that's a declaration of war. That's not a person in the employer class willing to sit down and work something out. That's an employer class trying to block and stop you by threatening you with one or another calamity if you don't stop demanding what is decent for you. We don't want to face that in the United States, that we are caught in a very bitter class struggle in which, for example, in the retail industry and the fast food industry, um, as someone recently pointed out, the CEOs of the very companies, McDonald's, Target, and so on, CVS, the very companies that are pushing against $15 an hour, the CEOs of those companies earn over $9,000 per hour. What a spectacle. $9,000 per hour executives pr protesting against paying workers $15 an hour. This is an outrageous attack in a class war and ought to be called out for what it is because that's the issue that has to be confronted or else we're forever going to be locked uh, in one after another of these struggles. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we see it right now playing out on the streets with the Verizon strike because you're talking about one of the most massive corporations anywhere in the world, this giant telecom company uh, and, and worth billions and billions of dollars in profit each year and is unwilling to give a fair shake to its workers. I mean, that's just it's the it's the tried and true method of management. This is obviously not a surprise to anybody. Um, but the, the second part that I just wanted to get your take on is a little bit away from the economics question to does the fight for 15 and and, and similar struggles around labor, does this also give us a window to reforming our labor movement, our trade union movement? Because we've seen over the last few decades increasingly uh, organized labor, although it's been further and further marginalized and and reduced to a shell of what it once was, even still, uh, many of the leaders of organized labor are in bed with a lot of the political leadership that works with these corporations. So I I see a movement in Fight for 15 that is also perhaps a window to reinvigorating our trade union movement. I think so, but it would mean that the, the folks fighting for 15 per hour are going to have to, how shall I put this, face up to some of the hard realities they're encountering. Mm-hmm. Even if you win, with all the struggle and sacrifice and commitment that those folks have shown across the United States, let's be real honest about what you will have achieved. You will have driven up the wage per hour to $15 for an army of people who certainly deserve it. But if you allow this capitalist system to work it out, the threats I mentioned a few minutes ago will in fact be carried out. These companies will substitute machines for workers to save on the now expensive $15 an hour worker. They will outsource to other countries to the extent that they can, uh, where they can pay much lower wages. They will jack up the price to the rest of the population, if they can, for what they sell, hoping thereby to set the buying public against the struggling workers to do all the things they typically do to shift the burden that they've had to now accept onto other people to embitter the society, to divide the society. That's why I always argue that this is, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, this is a systemic problem. And that the way in the end to properly reimburse working people is to stop having a system that divides each enterprise into a mass of people working for a living on the one hand and a tiny group of people, the major shareholders and the boards of directors that they select. Because when you do that, when you divide the ownership and control of enterprise so that a small minority owns and and controls it and a vast majority merely works in it, you really can't be surprised that those who control it do so in their own interest, that they take for themselves the lion's share of the profits produced by that industry, that they decide how to make more profit in ways that sacrifice the interests of the workers whom they have excluded from those decisions. This is a systemic problem. And while, of course, I support the struggle 
for $15 an hour. I know how capitalism works, and if that's where we stop, we are going to leave that system with all of its current recourses to make us pay uh, in the end for whatever it is they don't win by blocking the efforts of those people to get a decent hourly wage. That's why I say we have to broaden it out to be a systemic uh, question. And that's also why I support, as much as I do, the notion that at the base, at the bottom, what has to happen is that if we want an economic system that works for people as a whole, that works above all for the working people who are the majority, then there's no alternative but to put the enterprises of our society under the control of the people themselves. And for me, that means worker co-ops. If the working people democratically together decide what the company produces and how and where and what is done with the profits that, after all, everybody's labor has contributed to producing, if we did that, then the outcomes of how all of that happens will help everybody, will serve everybody democratically, in, in an equal way, and we will not have the kinds of dead-end struggles that even when we win them, still allow a system that is no good for us to pervert, in a way, the very point and purpose of the struggles we undertake. Absolutely. And that's really, I mean, you segued it beautifully. Uh, that's really where I wanted to lead our conversation, this notion of the worker self-directed enterprise or the co-op, or there's many terms for it. But as as an alternative model of, it's not just an inter- alternative model for how an enterprise is, is run. It's really, in effect, it's an alternative model for how society is organized on the economic level. And actually, that would expand out to the the, the very fabric of society. So, um, so can you give us just maybe one example or, or a couple of examples that you have encountered in the real world of this sort of uh, of model being implemented so that for people it's sort of taken out of the realm of an abstraction and they can kind of uh, put something concrete in their minds? Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked because the last thing I want is to leave the impression that workers taking control of their enterprise is some futuristic, utopian imaginary that I want people to get excited about. Uh, Not at all. People have been trying, and by the way, successfully forming worker co-ops for hundreds and indeed thousands of years. It runs very deep in the human spirit to have a cooperative democratic enterprise. It's at least as powerful as whatever led us all and our ancestors to fight for a democratic political space, to get rid of the dictators we called kings, queens, emperors, czars, and to substitute something at least much more inclusive. All that I'm really saying is, if democracy is good for the place where you live, for the political community you're a part of, well, then the exact same reasons apply to democratize the enterprise. Why do we keep thinking that we need a tiny group of executives and shareholders to tell us what to do? We don't need them any more than we needed the kings and queens who wanted to tell us what to do uh, in our lives. And, and that has been a powerful force, and so people have, in fact, created 
worker co-ops. I'm going to use as the big example these days uh, the most successful one right now in the world, which is called the Mondragon Corporation. Uh, very quickly, a story of it. 1956, a Roman Catholic priest in the north of Spain, a very, very poor area at that time, makes a joke uh, on a Sunday sermon to his parish. He says, look, if we keep waiting for some capitalist to come around here and give us all jobs to overcome the unemployment, we will all die of old age before that happens. And after everybody stops laughing at this joke, he says, look, let's take our own fate into our own hands. Let's not wait for an employer to come. Let's become our own employer. And in a word, what he was saying was, let's start a co-op in which we give ourselves jobs where we are our own boss and we handle it as a cooperative. All right, that's 1956. He starts with six workers in his Catholic parish in the city of Mondragon in the north of Spain. Fast forward to today. The Mondragon Corporation has somewhere between 80 and 100,000 employees. It's the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. It is actually a family of about 150, 160 uh, co-ops that have banded together. They do manufacturing jobs. They do service work. They do all kinds of things. Uh, they've been very successful. That kind of a growth record from six to 85,000 in 50 years would be the envy of any capitalist corporation. Throughout that time, they had to compete with capitalist enterprises that were organized in the usual capitalist, non-democratic, hierarchical way, and they won that competition. That's why they grew. Many times the companies they outcompeted fell apart, and those workers became members of Mondragon co-ops. To give you an idea not only of how successful they are and how large they have come, uh, here's a couple of rules that govern them. First rule, and this is, I only mention it to blow your mind because I want people to see what's possible. In the Mondragon Corporation, once a year, the workers get together and decide whether they want to keep the managers. That's right. Workers hire the managers, not the other way around. In capitalism, the managers hire the workers. In worker co-ops, it's the other way. Here's another example. There's a rule in Mondragon that the highest paid worker cannot get more than eight and a half times what the lowest paid worker does. In other words, they get together and democratically decide what the different wage levels will be for the different work that is done, whether the work is unpleasant or the work has to have be done in off hours. So they, they recognize that some people should be paid more than others, but that there should be a limit. Eight and a half to one is the Mondragon limit. By contrast, here in the United States, it is not at all uncommon in our larger uh, corporations that the CEO gets 300 times what the lowest paid worker in that enterprise gets. Mondragon does not permit the grotesque inequality that we have come to accept as normal and routine in capitalist societies. So this is not a pipe dream. This is not a future utopian possibility. This is something that has been tried and perfected uh, around the world, and, and Mondragon is in no way 
the only example. Indeed, Mondragon is so successful that they have their own university. It's called the Mondragon University, where they have regular courses, they give degrees, and where anything you might want to know about how to set up a co-op, how to finance a co-op, how to run a co-op, how co-ops have solved various kinds of problems, what works, what doesn't work. None of that has to be rediscovered as if we were reinventing the wheel. It's all there. It's all organized. I've been to Mondragon. I know exactly how they run their courses, and they are as effective, if not more, than any of the American universities I have taught in. So, yeah, it is a real possibility. The only interesting question is whether the American people will be able and willing to fight to begin to get the kind of change that we know how to do if only the political will to bring it about is developed. Well, and and that's really, I think, a good place for us to wind up our conversation here, because I think that what you're getting at, I, of course, agree with all of that, and then bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, about a potential, uh, the the conditions being ripe for a potential economic uh, disaster unfolding in, you know, in the in the future at some point. And I think that to some degree, um, there there is a there is a sort of um, a need, or maybe a a a desire for human beings to have some kind of external stimuli to push them towards remaking a system or creating a new system or moving from one to the next. And I wonder whether the coming economic instability and potential disaster might actually, out of necessity, drive people towards a reorganization of the workplace, a reorganization of the economic system. My feeling is that that's exactly what's happening now, that we are in that very process that you just asked about. And here's how I would put it. I think in the collective memory, for example, of the American working class, is a knowledge handed down perhaps from grandparents to parents to children that in the 1930s there were very, very hard times. And the American people rose up, which they did, in three organizations, the CIO, the greatest unionizing drive America has ever seen, very successful, two socialist parties and a communist party. They were all allies in bringing the mass of suffering American workers, suffering through the Great Depression, uh, to join the union movement. And this got them unbelievable gains, uh, a reversion against the inequality of the time a movement, at least for a few years, to a much less unequal society. It got them institutions that have transformed people's lives. The minimum wage, which was passed for the first time in the 30s. The social security system that gave us a way of helping the elderly and those who suffered accidents along the way in life. Uh, A public jobs program that showed that the society could, in fact, provide full employment for people, that there was no problem at all as long as profit didn't make the final determination. I think that what the working class has learned is all of that was wonderful, but all of that was not enough, because you never took away from the capitalists the power they have by the fact that they own and dominate what enterprises do. 
so that the enterprises, the private capitalist enterprises of America, having failed to stop the New Deal, went to work to evade it, to weaken it, and ultimately to eliminate it over the last 40 years, so that the working class understands that we're not going to do all that again, struggle all that way again, in order to get another set of reforms and new laws the way we did in the 1930s, the way we succeeded in the 1930s. If I can put it bluntly, I think in the working class there's an understanding we've been there and we've done that. If we're going to be mobilized again, we demand that the goals that we seek will prevent the undoing of what we achieve if we achieve it again. We don't want to have that struggle and do no better than we did last time because that allowed what we won to be taken away from us. And for me, here's what that means. We have to take away from the private capitalists the ownership and the control that they used to undo what we achieved in the 1930s. And the only way to do that is to replace the private capitalist enterprise with a worker co-op in which the people who work in an enterprise democratically decide what happens in and to it and do that together with a democratic community, residential community where people live, so that the community and the economy are both democratically organized and interdependent. That's the way you make an economic system serve everybody rather than to have it the way it's organized now, which ultimately services, as we see more every day, a tiny, wealthy minority of our community. Exactly right. And for those of us who consider ourselves, you know, revolutionary socialists, Marxists, or, or whatever, you know, uh, um, labels you attach to yourself, and for those of us who get a warm feeling every time we bury our noses in Marx and in Luxembourg and in Lenin and all of these texts, you know, the, the, the talk of the seizing the means of production, which is a longstanding, you know, concept going back, you know, uh, nearly two centuries, seizing the means of production. Well, what does that mean today? in the 21st century in this time in this place and to my mind one of the one of the um manifestations of seizing production the means of production is exactly what you're talking about the reorganization of the workplace the machine you know seizing control of the machine tools the bureaucracy all of that uh transformation of that kind to me is revolutionary yes and you know I one of the ways I often end my talks is I say, come with me into a, an imaginary scene. Uh, but it isn't imaginary any more than worker co-ops are because I've been in this situation actually in my life. But let me briefly spell it out for you. The employer calls the workers together. Maybe there's 200, maybe there's 2,000, it doesn't matter. And the employer gives a famous speech. And by the way, this happens in America every day. And the speech goes like this. I, all, I love you all. You are my workers. I'm, I'm grateful to you all, but I have bad news. Uh, my competitors are making it impossible for us to sell the products we produce because they're producing them in China or India or Brazil. They're paying workers a great deal less, 
And so they're able to make a profit by charging less than we can afford uh, if we're going to make a profit. So I'm very sorry, but I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be closing this factory, this office, this store, and moving to fill in the blank. It doesn't matter where. At that point in America, mostly the workers, whether or not they're in a union, go into a begging procedure. They beg the employer, please don't go. They offer to give up their pensions or their holidays or their medical insurance or their very wages or the hours they have in order to persuade the capitalist, basically by making his business there more profitable, not to leave, at least for another few years maybe, etc., etc. And the whole name of the game becomes how much do the workers have to give up in the standard of living they will then have in order not to lose their job and their entire livelihood. Excuse me, livelihood. Well, I have an alternative, and here's the alternative. You sit down at the table, you listen to what your boss says, and then, as if a new script had been written, you say to the boss, well, sorry to see you go, have a nice trip, uh, and that's the end of that. And the employer looks, he said, wait a minute, I thought you were going to be begging the way you always do in these moments. No, say the workers, things have changed. When you leave, we're telling you, here's what's going to happen. We, the workers here that you've left behind or that you're proposing to leave behind, we're going to take over this factory. We're going to use something called the right of eminent domain, which is in the law in this country. Uh, if the community needs an asset, it can force the owner of that asset to sell that product or that asset uh, to the community. We're going to use that law. And we're going to go to the local politicians, and they're going to use that law, and we are going to take, we'll pay you, of course, but we're going to take this factory, and we're going to keep it going, or this office, and we're going to run around the country, and we're going to tell everybody who you sold the products to, everybody here in America, that you can either buy from the company that abandoned this country and went to China or India or Brazil, or you can reward your fellow American workers here, you can buy from us. We have kept the jobs here. We have kept the community viable because with the jobs still here, the taxes are paid. That allows the, school to, uh, the public schools to run and the fire department to do its work, etc. And we're going to say to the local politicians, you know why you're going to use eminent domain? And you know why you're going to give us the new worker co-op here, a tax break? And you know why you're going to give us a subsidy? Because we're going to run around the community and tell everybody, you did what was necessary to save these jobs, and you will be very popular. And if you don't help us, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Governor, Mr. Senator, you won't be able to run for dog catcher because we will explain to the people what you were unwilling to do and what it cost everybody. I can assure you, having been in this situation, that this is a way to get very fast the kinds of changes, the kinds of developments of a viable worker co-op sector in the United States that we can deploy and we can develop just as they did in Spain, just as they did in Italy, where, by the way, worker co-ops are more prevalent than in any other European country. 
and as they are now doing in England, where the British Labour Party has taken the lead in pledging itself to be an agent for the development of a worker co-op economy alongside the capitalist economy. Let them then compete these two systems, because I, for one, haven't the slightest doubt how that competition will end up. Very well said. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there, although there's so many more things we could talk about. Hopefully I can have you back on in the not-too-distant future. Guys, you gotta follow uh, Rick Wolf's work. Um, democracyatwork.info, very important resource. R.D. Wolf with two F's, rdwolf.com. Economic update every Saturday. Um, it's available in, I think, what, most cities nowadays. And uh, also the yeah. podcast is available online. Um, follow that. Get the book, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. Richard Wolf, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. It was really great. Thank you, Eric, and I would be glad to resume this conversation whenever it works out for your schedule. Thank you so much, and listeners, thanks as always. Speak to you again next week. 